As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I have the great privilege of interviewing my guest today for the third time on the Practice You podcast. His name is Diego Perez, and he goes by the pen name Young Pueblo. He is a meditator. He is a New York Times best-selling author. He is widely known on Instagram. If you want to go look, go Young Y U N G Pueblo. Various social media networks, of course. Online, he has an audience of over 2.2 million humans. This is the millions. His writing focuses on the power of self-healing, creating healthy relationships, the wisdom that comes when we truly work on knowing ourselves. He has become a dear friend, a brother of a sort to me. And this book, Lighter, about which we are discussing today, is the first time that he lets us in to his personal journey. Diego, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much, Elena. I'm so grateful to be speaking with you again. And it's been a little while, but um, yeah, it's always such a joy for us to be in contact. Always a joy. I look forward so much to uh, October 7th. We'll be together on the stage at 92nd Street. Why? I'm so honored that you've asked me to be in conversation with you. And I think I just, I just, I just want to thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, no, of course. So when I was, um, you know, I was talking to my wife, Sarah, about, okay, you know, we got the venue and I knew that if it was going to be anybody, I had to ask you first. And I knew it was a lot to ask to come all the way back to New York. Mm. And I also wasn't sure what your relationship has been with the city since you moved out. So I was like, okay, let me, you know, tread carefully because I want to just, just respect all of your decisions. But um, I'm so happy that you decided to help me out with this one because I think it's just going to be so much fun. Yeah. Maybe towards the end of this podcast, I'll read the poem that I wrote you in my upcoming book, which is called Softening Time. But for our listener, Diego and I have this relationship where we used to go for these walks, pretty long walks through Central Park. We were first, you know, starting out, really. We were just getting to know each other. And there was this interesting, otherworldly, otherlifely connection in terms of the support that we could offer each other. It was really interesting and very nourishing for both of us to be together. And that's how this relation began. Yeah. And I, you know, I want to tell from my perspective, I feel like you were one of the most sort of critical people that gave me their support early on that helped um, everything grow for me. You know, I think I, I remember, I think you probably started sharing my stuff when I had like, maybe like 20,000 followers or something like that. Like we're talking early on, like 2017, maybe earlier than that, 2016. And um, I feel like um, we just have such a deep bond and 
I love the way that we support each other. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm completely, utterly grateful um, for our friendship and all that you've done for me. Thank you. I want to start sort of regaling our listener with the reality of your situation as a kid. Your parents emigrated from Ecuador to the States in the hopes of a better future. What year was this? This was 1992. I remember we came in the, I think it was either the summer or the the spring, but we hadn't really felt the cold yet. But I remember, yeah, it was warm. Oh, and gosh, I was just graduating college that year, actually. And you observed, among so many other things, so beautifully written in this first section of the book, Lighter, you observed your parents having basically the hardest time of their lives, just trying to make ends meet in New York, but knowing that they were giving you the best possible potential outcome by bringing you here, or at least hoping. Can you tell our listener a little bit about that time in your life and what it meant to you and how it affects you still today? Definitely. You know, I when I think back on and just listening to you now, it's making me particularly remember how it wasn't until I was like nine or 10 when I realized how my parents had basically pulled themselves out of everything that they knew. Like they, they, you know, when in Ecuador, we have a massive family. We, I have so many aunts and uncles, so many cousins, and there's just, there's just tons of us. Um, but they left literally everyone they know. And I never really understood how hard that must've been for my mom and dad. And as I got, you know, as I got a little bit older and even to when the first time they were able to travel back, cause they actually, um, I think my, my mom didn't go back to Ecuador until I was like 17. Um, so we were like, you know, totally like they would speak to each other on the phone, but they were, you know, they literally hadn't seen each other for just such a like over a decade. And, um, I can't even imagine that, you know, like I see my siblings, um, multiple times a year and we're all, you know, in the same country and we're all very connected but um, but to not see them for over a decade just sounds heart-wrenching and unimaginable. So I think about that sort of like emotional, um, intense situation that they place themselves in to be away from their family. And on top of that, they're in this totally new environment trying to help us survive in the United States, like in Boston, in the early 90s. And also just like having these like new jobs, you know, where they were like, because um, in and my mom, um, she had like a, an office job in Ecuador and my dad worked um, for a like fishing company. Um, but then when they came to the United States, my mom worked cleaning houses and my dad um, worked at a supermarket. So, they, you know, everything was just completely different and they had no one to bail them out. And it was, it was tough seeing them struggle and the four of us struggling together because my little sister was born a little later when I was about 10 years old. But it was hard. It's really heart-wrenching. And um, the way it has affected me now is that I try to give back to them as much as I can. And um, I just, you know, I love them so much. And I tried my best to make sure that, that um, I'm not only physically there with them as often as I can be, but that I'm economically supporting them, just, you know, really trying to make their lives easier than they were before. Yeah. Oh, I just want to take a moment. 
want to give myself and you a little bit of empathy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, it explains in my small mind so much about the clarity with which you have approached everything coming from a place of so much duress as a kid. But there was a, a, a distinct window between that duress and this, you know, success in this sort of societal sense of the word. There was a moment where you say in the book, and I quote, During the years when I had abandoned myself, my mind felt undeniably heavy, and I knew that I needed to find a clear way to help feel lighter. I began by examining every part of my life and put my focus on doing the opposite of what had almost led me to an early death. That almost early death, I know it's a giant span of energy and a short span of time, but I would love to share whatever you're willing to share with our listener about that time. Sure, sure. Um, So during that time, I had, I had developed these tendencies towards anxiety and towards um, sort of just running away from my emotions. And it compounded over time, you know, like I remember feeling that, that tension when I was younger. Um, And then as I got older, and especially when I got into college, it really ballooned. And, um, and I just developed really nasty habits. Like I um, would party all the time. I was often doing drugs multiple times a week and um, was, you know, smoking marijuana all the time and was just constantly numbing myself. And particularly when I would feel tension or emotional turbulence inside of myself, like I just, I just couldn't grapple with it and I needed to numb myself in some manner. Um, and this, you know, continued throughout college and then it got worse, uh, after because I was just sort of aimless. Like, you know, I was having a lot of trouble finding a job. I like didn't know what I wanted to do. And I just, you know, kept going, riding the same patterns. And, um, it eventually led me to like, just crashing. I totally, totally crashed. And, um, yeah, I almost lost my life one night. I felt like I was having a heart attack and it was, you know, it was excruciating, you know, laying there on the, on the ground and thinking about how I had let myself get to this point. Like what, what was it that went wrong? And, um, what became really clear was that I was lying to myself. That's what got me there. I was lying to myself about how terrible I felt. Like I didn't feel good inside and I didn't want to admit that I didn't feel good inside. And once I was able to admit it, um, I was able to just, you know, turn around and just start, start appreciating life. I remember I, you know, I threw away the drugs and, um, and I knew that I wanted to live. I wanted to live and I wanted to try my best to live well. Well, gosh, we've all been in that some form of that experience. And I really want to honor those moments. I can sort of see you on the ground, just praying. Mm -hmm. I can feel it in my bones. You, from that point you began, and, and I think here's where the gold is for our listener. From that point, you began paying in your words, real attention to your thought patterns, even when they felt turbulent. 
You started examining your relationships with friends and family and tried behaving with kindness and patience in areas where, where there was once too much roughness and irritability. I do feel like that is the first gate. Like, just try and be nice. <laughs> you acted like a detective in your mind. This is the gold. You acted like a detective in your mind, asking questions to deeply investigate and discover the source of my problems. Whenever the urge to escape with intoxicants tried to take hold, I would bring my awareness inward to take a good look at the tension. I remember finding immense amounts of sadness and fear and an emptiness that ached for love. Later, I would discover that this was a place that only my own love and unconditional compassion could fill. You know, if I was like a radio show DJ, I would have like some sort of sound effect with a big round of applause <laughs> right here. If you, if you stop listening right now, our listener, you got it. You got it. Act like a detective in your mind. My question, though, is this. You found Vipassana. Vipassana is the proper way to say it. In 2012. And this, I think, is the, the genesis of this detective work that has so much compassion sprinkled all over it. Can you tell our listener a little bit about Vipassana and what it meant to you and what it still continues to mean today? Definitely. I, um, and it's funny, like I, I spent a whole year being a detective in my mind and sort of challenging myself to sit with the tough emotions. And this was before I learned how to meditate. Like I, I didn't know how to meditate at all during that first year when, when I was sort of just examining my habits, examining the way I would behave with people and just trying to turn everything around. And um, all of that felt like really good practice for me. Um, it made my determination a lot stronger to just repeatedly say yes to a new way of living. When I started meditating Vipassana, I realized uh, that there was universal law, that there was this, this undercurrent of truth that pervaded all of existence, you know, all, anything physical, anything mental. And, um, and there's the truth of change there. And that's really the crux of this style of Vipassana is that it tries to teach you how to commune with that truth of change, to literally, you know, feel the truth of change within the framework of the body. Um, and that first 10 day course kicked my butt, it just kicked my butt. And I, I, um, when I got out, you know, it was, I felt like it was so difficult, but when I got out, I felt better. I felt substantially better in a way where, you know, I did so much work that one year, uh, before I started meditating and I definitely felt better from that work, but those 10 days made such a massive impact in my mind. And it was so fast. It was 10 days compared to a year um, that I knew I had to go back. Like I knew I was like, I don't understand this. Like, I don't really know what I'm, you know, <laughs> what, what I really just learned, but I know I need to go back and get more of this because I feel better in such a, you know, such a radical way that um, I need to learn. And what I did learn was that it's a, it's a technique for purification. And it taught me that the mind is, you know, it's heavy. It accumulates so much. And over time, and as you keep practicing, as you keep observing the, the truth within the framework of the body, um, the deconditioning process happens and you start 
you know, just all these heavy things, these, these heavy habit patterns just start burning away and the mind becomes lighter, lighter, lighter. And, you know, if you continue on this path, you can, you know, if you take the Buddhist teaching seriously and you keep walking on the path, then eventually you'll read the, you know, reach the total extinguishing of craving and thus the extinguishing of suffering. Um, but that's also, you know, that's a long path, but that's kind of where I'm at today is, is just continuing, just taking these tiny steps forward on this long path um, where I'm, you know, very committed to, to deep liberation. Um, and so I still, you know, continue going on 10 day courses. I continue going on uh, longer courses now, 30, 45 day courses. And um, I just, I learned so much from it. And that's why I only, I only practice this one technique. And, you know, I also diligent, diligently um, keep meditating daily, you know, I, I meditate two hours a day and it has been everything. I mean, it's really just the foundation of my life. For our listener uh, who just got nervous hearing you say that you meditate for two hours a day, it's hard for perhaps them to meditate for two minutes. Can we talk just a touch about what the practice entails in your eyes and experience? And what one would have to look forward to going to a silent retreat such as this? Definitely. So the retreat begins um, with three days of um, a practice called Anapanasati, which is awareness of the natural breath. And those three days, you really get to learn how wild your mind really is. Because as soon as you start trying to just observe the natural breath. It's like jumping into the future, it's jumping into the past, it's craving this, it's hating that, and it just tries to rebel. But over time, it calms down. And once you do those three days of being aware of the breath, um, you then start observing the body and start um, just you know feeling whatever's there. And those three days make the mind very, very subtle so that when you do start feeling the body for the next seven days, you um, are able to feel a lot more than you ever thought you could feel. You, you know, you're able to feel um, the clarity of the sort of gross, dense sensations or painful sensations. Like you see them with a new crispness. You can feel um, that sort of vibrancy of the density, if that really makes sense. And at the same time, you also start realizing that there are very subtle vibrations that are happening throughout the body, you know, very sort of uh, soft, like changing vibrations that are moving throughout. And either one of them, you know, whether it's really gross and thick or painful or really subtle, like there's change happening in them. And that truth of change just cleans the mind. And I'll tell you, like, it's, it's um, you know, it's, I didn't meditate at all before I went there. I meditated once for 20 minutes and I had no idea what I was doing. I just sat down on the ground and I was like, this did not work. Like I, because I had no, there was no teaching there. Um, but when I went to the 10 day course and I learned, you know, it's, it's at the 10 day course is literally a giant guided meditation. Like you're, you know, you're constantly told, okay, now do this and now do that. And, um, and it's really helpful because you're, you know, someone's holding your hand through the process and, by the end of it, you can, you know how to do it yourself. Um, so if you haven't meditated at all, that's okay. Like that's how we all started. Um, and even, you know, starting to meditate at home for me, like that was really, really difficult. And um, I had to really, you know, 
keep trying again until one day I got it right and I stuck to it. You know, you talk a little bit in lighter, particularly about not just the clarity of this sort of renaissance that you had within yourself, but you talk about the undercurrent of impermanence. This is one of the sort of fundamental foundational tenets of Buddhist teaching. Everything. We are all of the nature to grow old. We are all of the nature to die. This undercurrent of impermanence, you say, elevates the world into higher definition. I would love to just present that to our listeners so that they can see kind of what what could occur with regular practice. Yes, I um I think that's probably the most important truth that one can really ground themselves in, even at the intellectual level, even to just remind yourself that everything is going to change. Everything. You don't know when, you don't know like especially with the conventional life, you know, you're living your everyday life because in that movement of everyday life, there is the undercurrent of change, like your body's constantly changing, you know, at the atomic level, at the cellular level, like everything's constantly moving. But um, at the sort of bigger level of life, like still things will continue to change. And at some point, life will not be the way it is now. And being able to embrace that truth, being able to understand that this situation that I'm in now, uh, it's something that is so fleeting that I should actually use that as a point of inspiration so that I can jump into the moment, so I can really embrace it, so I can come into it with a much more energetic presence um, so that I can be a part of it, so that I can love the people that I love or so, so that I can, you know, better tolerate whatever difficulty with that truth of impermanence, because if, even if something's really hard right now, it doesn't mean it's going to be hard forever. Um, so understanding that everything is constantly fluctuating, I think it just, it will reunite you with the vibrancy of life because it is also vibrant and we get so stuck in our minds, building all of these false narratives or building all of these stories that just do not really serve us. But instead, what really serves us, what really activates your personal healing is just by joining the present moment, what's happening right there in front of you. And in that, there's, you know, you're activating letting go, you're activating your healing, and you're just giving yourself the opportunity to live in a way that, uh, that you won't regret, in a way where you're like, wow, I'm really living life. Not enlightened, as you say in the book, but lighter. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the goal for many of us. I think it's totally possible for people to become enlightened. It just takes a lot of work. Um, but what's more available to us is becoming lighter, for sure. For our new listener, like I said at the at the top, we do have two other episodes that Diego and I have recorded here on the Practice You podcast. But for our newer listener, I would just love to talk about the name, the pen name that you go by, Young Pueblo, for a moment. In lighter, you say that humanity is not yet matured. The basic things we're taught and start practicing as children to clean up after ourselves, tell the truth, to treat each other fairly, to share, to be kind to one another, not to harm each other. These have not yet been, according to you, successfully applied at the level of society. But these principles do show us a path to supporting the health and harmony of all people. In this century in particular, it feels like we are in a special moment in human history, poised to face our great challenges and to come 
to terms with much of the harm that we've directly and indirectly caused each other. What you're implying with this name is that we are a young people. Can you talk a little bit about why you've chosen to write under that name rather than your own? I think I have very fortunately stumbled upon that name. Um, I remember when I opened my personal Instagram account in 2012, you know, just before I even thought of writing, um, that was the name that came to me. I was like, oh, right, Young Pueblo. And I, I enjoyed the name because Pueblo is a word that's used all, all over Latin America. And I think even um, different indigenous groups also use it. So it has a lot of different meanings um, for, for where I come from. And the way that I've understood the word is that it means uh, the masses of impoverished people, like, the, you know, like the, like the people, not just like a town, but like the, the, the masses of people. Um, and it just fits well with like um, my Americanness at the same time, you know, obviously like I've been like, I've grown up in the United States since I was four years old. I've always been influenced by like all the different cultures that are in the United States, heavily influenced by hip hop. So it kind of came together and was like, oh, right, young Pueblo. Like, um, and I was like, oh, I love the name. It combines my Americanness with you know, my Ecuadorianness. But then when I started meditating and it became so clear to me how immature I was and how unbalanced humanity was at the same time. And similarly, how this like growing healing movement that was happening and how many people were actively healing themselves, I was like, wait, there's something happening here. Like the humanity itself is young and we're all in this process of maturing. We're all growing up. And um, I think when I, you know, humanity has so many daunting challenges, huge challenges that we have to overcome. But what gives me the most hope by far is the fact that a healing generation is emerging. There are more people than ever before. I, I would say millions and millions of people who are actively healing themselves and they're using Western modalities, they're using Eastern modalities, they're using indigenous modalities. It's really like, you know, across the spectrum, but people are finding tools that meet them where they're at. And I think that's why I continue using the name Young Pueblo, because I love the the arc that it puts all of my work inside of, you know, because we're all doing this together. Like we're all maturing together. And there's so many people who are adding their piece to helping the collective of humanity mature. And um, I think um, the name itself helps me stay grounded in why I began to write in the first place. And, and my original mission was just to tell the inspire people to hopefully heal themselves because I was so shocked that healing was even possible. Yeah. You wrote that this moment is an opening to grow deeply in our maturity so that we may build a world that is no longer structurally harmful, but is structurally compassionate. You know, I think that really sums it up. Yeah. Yeah. Systemic harm replaced by systemic compassion. I think so. And I love that term structural compassion because it helps the imagination, right? Like we have to first dream about it and kind of like feel it in our bodies before we can start detailing the exact like 
you know, this is how this institution should work alongside that institution. And this is how this country should help that country and whatnot. But first, we really have to be able to dream and kind of get a sense and arc of what direction we should be moving in. And um, I'm, you know, trying to build that connection in this book, like show that not only the different thresholds that a person crosses when they're healing themselves and different things that they're trying to understand, but just build that bridge um, at the end of the book between personal transformation and global transformation, because I really feel that the two are so deeply interconnected. And I feel that that's in particular what's been missing in history. You know, there have always been groups of people trying to change the world for the better, but now we can actively heal ourselves simultaneously. Um, and the example that I often give is that power functions like a magnet on the ego and it pulls out the roughest parts. It will pull out the roughest parts. So you will see and maybe even start acting upon those rough parts of your ego. And for a lot of people, this has happened so many times in history, you know, groups of people will come together around beautiful ideals and then they'll start winning and they'll gain power. And then they end up reproducing the things that they hated, the things that they were fighting against. And I think what can make a big change and sort of create a new chapter in history is that if we can heal ourselves while we're, while we're simultaneously healing the world, um, we'll be less likely and less inclined to, to hurt each other. Which points to why you start chapter one is the chapter on self-love. And this is the very first priority that we talk about in the book. A line in this chapter stands out for me. I feel like it should have its own page. You say, quote, I discover that the appreciation you seek from others will not hold the same rejuvenating power as the appreciation, attention, and kindness you can, you can give to yourself. That, I feel, is the kind of crux, the foundation of everything you do, really. And I think that if we can do this collectively, effectively, if we can do this individually effectively, we do have the bridge to this non-judgmental and honest attention that, that you call for, that this time calls for. And I, I think you probably see it within your own, right, the people that surround you as well, because I see it with the people around me, like, the, you know, my fellow meditators, like, um, I'm like, like I, I currently live in Western Massachusetts, pretty close to a meditation center that I go to and, um, I have a nice, you know, group of friends here who are also in their early thirties and, um, and they all meditate and I, I've seen them transform the way that I've transformed. Like I see how much the cleansing their mind and, you know, putting themselves through those serious process of healing, how it has made them into such gentle people, like people who actively love themselves, people who will make sure that they're properly nourished. And at the same time, they treat other people so kindly. And not only do they walk more gently, but they're so much more creative. They're, you know, the way that they think feels new and fresh because their minds aren't as burdened by the hurt of the past. And um, I think if, you know, as more and more people keep treading forward on their own journeys and, you know, using whatever modalities, right? Because like, even if 
you don't want to meditate, like that's okay. You can find something that will help you heal yourself. Like there are so many different forms of therapy out there, but what matters is that you at the very least take a few steps forward in this life. This is a quote from the book as a nice segue, taken to its highest form. And this is really for our listener who is wondering like, whoa, what is self-love really? Taken to its highest form, self-love is an energy we use to evolve. Again, taken to its highest form, self-love is an energy we use to evolve. Ultimately, Diego says, I define self-love as, quote, doing what you need to do to know and heal yourself. Which it seems, as you describe these colleagues of yours nearby, in their, in their young 30s when I was like really high on drugs, it seems that this knowing ourselves and, and doing whatever we need to do in order to become intimate with ourselves and heal ourselves, if we put this at the forefront, we can literally change the way people around us operate by our very being. It's really true. I mean, and it's funny because um, even in people who aren't even that open to healing themselves, like when you do something new, it creates an opportunity for someone else to do something new as well. And there's also the, the reality too that, that similar emotions attract each other. So let's say you're in a like disagreement with someone, but if you choose to calm yourself, in that moment, if you choose to sort of open yourself up to empathy, open yourself up to compassion, and start delivering gentleness, it gives that other uh, that other person an opportunity to also offer gentleness. And um, that's something that you know when you do your own inner work. Obviously, you can't always be the person who you know creates solutions. Like people have to do their own work too. But you actually because you're walking gently, you're actively inspiring other people to walk gently with you as well. We talk in this book about self-love being multifaceted and the three facets that you point out initially are radical honesty, positive habit building, which is like one of the best reasons to get this book, our listener, and unconditional self-acceptance. I want to talk about radical honesty because you point out that it's a form of authenticity. It begins inside you. It's a warm recognition that you gently apply to your conscious life. This view of radical honesty is not about telling everyone what you think. Instead, it is the root from which self-awareness grows. <laughs> I love that you're pointing this one out because, um, you know, one thing that happens to people as they're... Um, you know, going on this journey and they're turning their attention inward is that their minds become a little more expansive. You actually start seeing that, you know, you can do more than what you thought you could do. And one thing that is definitely possible is keeping a little bit of your attention inward as you're moving through the day so that you're taking note of the way that your emotions are fluctuating you know, the way that, um, you know, like what's inspiring your speech, like what, what emotion is it that's activating your, your need to talk or, or just the different things that are, you know, moving about inside you. If you're aware of them, it actually will not only, you know, 
not only is it a strong practice of self-awareness, but it's one of the best ways to stop any unnecessary arguments from happening. Mm. Mm. Interesting, because you also say that the lies that we have a tendency to tell ourselves, this is kind of the moment and the context in which we can examine those lies just so that the truth can come forward. It's not about eliminating them. It's not about we're bad people for, you know, lying to ourselves or trying to save ourselves from feeling certain things. It's not about punishing yourself, you say. It's not about harsh self-talk either. It's about calmly being in constant contact with your truth. And I really appreciate that. I think it's, um, and it's funny because it, it doesn't need to be an opportunity for punishing, like what you're saying. <clears throat> when you discover that you're lying to yourself or whenever I find, like when I'm meditating or just moving through the day and realize that like some stories building up that's not really fundamentally true, it's a point, you know, it's a, it's a space for you to kind of laugh at yourself and be like, oh, wow, you're, you know, doing, doing that again but not in a way where you're like putting yourself down, but you're just <clears throat> almost like finding joy in the nonsense, you know, like it's like, oh, right. Like I see what my mind is doing, but I'm not going to fall for the trick this time. Chapter two is about healing. I think we covered really well this sort of structural and financial difficulties that your family faced that caused some, in fact, relational difficulty between your parents and how this led very, very naturally to your issues with drugs that then got solved through meditation and, and self-inquiry. We've talked about how healing is the release of the tension that very naturally builds up in the face of trauma. I would love to talk a little bit with our listener about the habits that you end up now building to kind of release on a daily basis, not just during a silent retreat, that tension that accumulates in the mind. Yeah, I think um I think what I try to do personally is that I I enjoy I enjoy writing, you know, I enjoy working, but I try not to exhaust myself. That's something that I like am very aware of is like if I'm pushing myself too far, then I'm just like it's it's a recipe for disaster. Like you know, that that's when you get like you start getting mean towards people or you start like you know, just like um, getting yourself confused and like off path. Um, so that's one one practice that I try to keep up pretty strictly is like, I try not to do too much. Like I do want to get a lot done, but I want to keep it pretty balanced because at the end of the day, I'm one person. And, you know, like I do have a lot of, um, like my community on Instagram and all of that is really big, but I don't have like a really big team. Like it's just me and my wife getting everything done. And um, so we literally make it so that we only do what we can do. We don't do more than what we can do, if that makes sense. And, um, and, and that, that's just been the best because we, we see our limits and that's, that's great, you know, like, cause we don't want to overburden ourselves in that way. And um, I think the other thing that, that I really try to practice is, communication with the people around me. So especially with my wife, um, we're really very actively will tell each other where we are on our emotional spectrum. So if I feel like a lot of heaviness passing through me, or if I just wake up and I 
you know, don't feel great, I just let her know right away. And similarly, when she doesn't feel great or she feels tired or, or whatnot, she lets me know. And that way she knows and I know. And we both are kind of like poised better to support each other in whatever way is needed. And I think that communication alone just like kind of stops any messiness from even happening. That's like a really, you know, um, a habit that we've built up over time that I think has been like critical to building harmony between the two of us. So beautiful. I, I think about that. If you're listening to us and you're a parent of a child or a partner to your spouse or partner, or even a child to a parent who might be aging and you're caring for that person, this might be a nice habit to, you know, a little homework assignment for you to start to get into the habit of saying, you know, hey, from now on, when you wake up in the morning, if you're having a really crappy morning or you're feeling weird in your body, let's just tell each other so that we know how to take care of each other so we can understand each other more deeply. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's just like, uh, it's been the best medicine. And I actually think that came out of like that, um, that first wave of the pandemic, you know, in 20, like that March of March, April, 2020, because, um, we were spending so much time together and, you know, she wasn't going to work anymore because she would drive to work each day. And, um, when we were in our little apartment in NYC, we were like, Oh, like, you know, as opposed to just like letting the narratives run away with us. Let's just tell each other how we feel. And, um, and it's been honestly like just the best practice. I highly recommend it. So beautiful. I want to just read through the names of the chapters so our listener can get a real good idea of what this book will feel like when you have it holding in your hands. The third chapter is about letting go, which we're going to touch on here. The fourth is about finding your practice, which I think we've sort of touched on a little bit here. The fifth is human habit versus human nature, a one that I really liked a lot. Six, emotional maturity. This is something you write on often. If you are not on Diego's blog, you do want to get on that. It's on Substack. It is well worth the time and the investment of, I think it's $5 a month to read all of his writings. They're always coming right on time. Chapter seven is about relationships. And I think we touched a little bit on one of the core fundamental practices that you and Sarah practice, which I respect so much. Eight challenges during healing. You write so well on this. Nine, internal changes ripple outward. We touched on this a bit already too. Ten, harmonizing the world. And eleven, a new era. That's the flow of the book. I would love to touch a little bit on letting go for a moment. I feel like this is something you are, because of all these hours you've spent in Vipassana, you are adept at speaking about this and practicing this. Tell us a little bit about what you feel our listener needs to know about letting go right now, today. The thing that's been coming up a lot in regards to letting go is how much it's intertwined with the acceptance of the present moment. Um, I heard this story from a teacher that I really look up to who's in my tradition. Um, and he was telling me about his friend who was talking to um, another teacher in India. And he was asking him, you know, like, how do I make progress? Like, how do, how do I make more progress on the path? And the teacher told him, just accept, just accept. 
And that's, you know, when that story was given to me, like my, <laughs> all the light bulbs just went off in my mind. And I was like, of course, I was like, letting go is just acceptance. Like, just accept the tension, like accept the turbulence, accept, you know, uh, the like, a mind that doesn't want to focus, like accept whatever it is, like in the actual act of meditation, like just accepting has helped me so much. Um, and I think in terms of like the practice of letting go is like, you are not going to change what happened to you. Like it, it happened, done. It's, it's in the past. But now if you're able to deeply accept it and embrace the fact that this was part of the story that created me, but now I can take responsibility for my healing. I can find the tools that I need to help me alleviate any of the patterns that have been hardened because of that situation that occurred, then I'm well on my way to actively letting go. Because letting go, you know, sometimes it can be an intellectual process, but often letting go has more to do with feeling than thinking. And I really, you know, I think when people are able to like accept what they're feeling, they're actively letting go of the past. So your letting go of the past happens in the present moment when you're accepting what you're feeling. You know, somewhere early in the book, I pulled this quote out and I don't know where it is exactly. It might even be in the intro. The simple act of being unafraid to take a deep look within released much tension in my mind. Simply accepting whatever I found helped me feel a new sense of ease, even when my mood was down. Running away from myself took up so much more energy than mustering the courage to embrace solitude and stillness. Like, that's the whole game right there. Yeah. I think there's so much, there's so much power in just being able to just see yourself. Take a good look. Don't look away, even if it's hard. Just take a deep, deep, deep look and literally allow yourself to feel what's happening in your mind and body. And that will take you a long way. And I think for a lot of different practices, I mean, there's so many meditation techniques out there, but for a lot of them, that's the crux is like, can you be aware of what's happening in you? Yeah, I have two little surprises for you. One is the fact that in one hour, I'm leaving for the Vipassana retreat that I was meant to do when I turned 50 two years ago. Really? In one hour. Wow. What timing? <laughs> I can't even believe it, actually. I got accepted in the last moment on the wait list. Like, I can't even believe it. Are you, where are you going? Here, near here, about 45 minutes away from where I am here in New Mexico. I have a very good feeling. I'm a little scared. That's great. I'm wishing you massive success. Thank you. Thank you. And then the second part is the poem that I wanted to read to you, that I wrote to you in the in the book softening time which is coming next year and thank you for agreeing to write the foreword you have no idea how much that means oh i'm so excited to write it i haven't done it yet but i've been like letting it marinate inside me mm -hmm. and i'm pretty pumped <laughs> <sighs> the poem that i wrote you is called the lawn and it's in reference to the great lawn in central park where we used to do laps together a few laps is all it takes I remember many of our words and even our shared steps, nervously but assuredly opening our hearts before we really know or trust, talking together while our, while our lives are under construction, 
making clear impressions that will continue uninterrupted. Just the walking together is somehow enough. Your faith in my experience becomes a beacon. My few thoughts about self-care indelibly creep into your consciousness. We remind one another to keep learning, keep changing, keep letting go. Not that either of us really need it, but still, we manage to help one another. Our common bond is held in your own words. The greatest gift sadness gave me was the motivation to transform. Wow. That's so beautiful. And it brings me right back to when we were hanging out in New York City. Right. It's so funny because I I had this like such a big, like my intuition was roaring when it was time to move to New York City. I think louder than any other time. And um, I think a big part of that was meeting you because I remember when you hosted my, um, my, my book release for Inward and that was when Inward was self-published. I don't know if you realize, but that moment that you decided to do that event with me, um, people reached out to me from Miami, from Los Angeles, from Washington, D.C., and they were like, hey, can you come here? And, um, and it was because you decided to do that one event with me in New York. And I attribute like, you know, like I, I even talked to my parents about this, you know, and uh, like, we all love you so much because th- there was that generosity that you gave us um, rippled out in, a, in an immense way. And that quote, that last quote is from Inward, page 37. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, brother, I'm so grateful. I also have a tendency to print out all of your substacks. And I'd like to close with a quote from November of 2021, Tuesday, November 20th. You sent this that day, and its title is Down Moments and Seeing More. I pulled it out because I thought it was a really good way to perhaps add to our podcast, or now I'd like to close with it. Controlling your external environment is always an unreliable and unproductive path to peace. If you want stability, you will have to build it from within. Preparing yourself for the inevitable down moment is a sign of wisdom. Gather your tools and lean on the methods that help you process your emotions. Yeah, that that's it. <laughs> I feel like gather your tools. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. <laughs> it's gonna come. It's like that's that's what life is. Life is an is an ocean, and it's there are waves. It's constantly moving up and down, and you know there will be storms, there will be sunlight, there will be everything. So you might as well embrace impermanence and get ready for it all. I'll close really, really with this: the three tools that you left us with in that blog. And I would encourage you to, our listener, to find it. One, this is not the time to judge yourself. Be intentional about redirecting your attention away from self-critique and allow yourself to simply sit with the tough moment without giving it any further fuel. You will see yourself more clearly when your mind is more balanced. Two, tough emotions can twist your perception of time. This is so good. Leaning on the intellectual understanding of impermanence can Help keep you grounded. Hurt does not last forever. Storms are temporary. Just because it's hard now does not mean this feeling will last. And finally, three. 
using the tools you have is not about escaping. It is about engaging with what you're feeling in a productive manner. So your tools, gather your tools, journal, meditate, get in touch with your therapist, see if they have ideas for how you can move through this tough moment. You say that a friend of yours who recently, who you really respect once told you, quote, meditate when you want to and meditate when you don't want to. Even if meditation isn't your thing, there is a lot out there that can help you engage with your inner world. Thank you for that. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you for the inspiration to consistently up-level my understanding intellectually, emotionally, and inwardly. And thank you for being in my world and for inviting me into yours. I will never stop thanking you for this. Thank you too, Elena. Honestly, our, our bond is something that I'm so profoundly grateful for, and I'm super excited about your book of poetry that's coming soon. I think softening time is going to it's just going to bless so many people. And yeah, I'm excited to let everyone know about it. Thank you. Thank you. The book is called Lighter and it's beautiful and it's yellow and it's gorgeous. And I can't wait to see you on the 7th of October at the Y. If you're listening to this, the Y event is also virtual. So it doesn't matter if you're not in New York, you can actually purchase the event, watch it virtually and watch the recording afterward. So thank you so much, Diego. Love you. Love to Sarah. And I'll see you guys in a few weeks. So much love. Thank you. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and 5 free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. 
Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.